Amen. Well, thank you so much, music team, for pointing us to Christ this morning. It's been a great day already. We had a great time at our equipping hour session this morning at 9 o'clock. We'll be starting a new study next week, 9 o'clock next week, starting the book of 1 Timothy. So I hope that you will make plans to join us next week. It's going to be a fantastic study. If you're visiting here with us today, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. You should find a card in the chair back just in front of you. It's our connection card. You could fill that out, and then there's a box in the back. You can drop it in if you'd like to. If you'd like for somebody to reach out to you or if we can pray for you in any way, you can indicate that on the card as well, and we would love to be in touch with you if you would appreciate that. We're not going to sell your information to Google or Amazon or anybody else, so it'll stay here uh, housed with us, and if you would appreciate that, uh, certainly fill that out, but don't feel obligated to do so. We're just glad that you're here. We're in the book of Luke today, Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 35. So our pattern here at Sunrise, we like to be pretty easy to figure out. We go through the Bible verse by verse, sometimes even word by word. Today we're going to take a little bit larger section because it's one unit of thought where we have a question about the identity of Jesus that comes from John the Baptist. Very interesting series of events that go on here in Luke chapter 7. So we take uh, verses, we take sections of scripture, and we just look at the next one each week. So we are fairly predictable in that way. I've titled this, Identity Identity Verification, Is Jesus Really the Messiah? Was Jesus actually the Messiah? And this is the question that John the Baptist asked. You know, identity, identity verification and cases of mistaken identity, stolen identity, it's a major issue for us in our world today, isn't it? My favorite is when the little toddlers around here, when they run up to the wrong person and grab their leg. Um, I don't know if that ever happens to you. It actually happens quite often. And I, it's, it's always great because, you know, from a, imagine yourself, like try to look at the world from the vantage point of a toddler, like you're this big. And you're just running around and like everybody kind of looks the same uh, from your vantage point. And so it happens all the time to me and a little kid will come up and they grab your leg and hold on to you. And I just always look down and say, hi. And, you know, then they go scurrying, looking for their owners and, like, get me out of here. Who's this crazy person? I'm like, you came to me. I didn't do this. Like, you created this situation. It is funny. There's all kinds of cases of mistaken identity, stolen identity. And it creates all kinds of problems for us. I don't know how many millions, perhaps probably billions of dollars is spent trying to prevent identity theft. And we see it all the time. Most of us, at some point, you've had your credit card heisted by somebody who tried to purchase some things. I got a call from our credit card company one night, and it's the middle of the night, and somebody was trying to buy, I think it was like 10 Nintendos at the time, a couple of Playstations, a Bose stereo system. Fortunately, our credit card company said, I don't think that one sounds quite right, and I was glad for consumer protections. This is a huge problem, and it's a problem that has bled certainly into the online world and the eternal frustration of passwords now. Anybody else in this boat with me? I need you to create a password. 12 characters, one special character, one capital letter, one letter from another country's language, three emojis, and then a notarized note from your mom that says it's okay for you to open this account. And by the time you finish this, it's like, I just hope my little autosave remembers this because if there's a password to get back in, I'll never get there. Well, today we're looking at a case of identity verification, but it's a much more serious issue. 
than somebody even stealing your credit card and making unauthorized purchases. We're looking at a case of John, John as we know him, John the Baptist. His mama didn't name him John the Baptist. You guys know that. We call him John the Baptist because he was the one who was baptizing. And we call him John the Baptist to distinguish him from John also called John the Evangelist, who wrote the Gospel of John. So there's a few different Johns um, in the Scriptures. So we know him as John the Baptist, or we could say John the Baptizer, the one who was baptizing out in the Jordan. And we know, of course, that John was the forerunner. He was the one that went before Christ to prepare the way for Christ. And so it's John asking this question of, who is Jesus? Are you the one? Or should we wait on someone else that is to come? I want to read our text for us, and then we're going to take a little bit of time and talk about what's going on here in the text. So this is John chapter 7, and we'll read verses 18 down through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, that is, to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men who had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Verse 21. In that hour, he, being Jesus, healed many of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. What an interesting passage of scripture we have. This is interesting for a number of reasons. It's interesting because of where it is in the narrative We'll describe that in just a moment. It's interesting to me as well because of who is asking, that is John the Baptist. And as we'll see, John was asked this very question himself. 
are you the one that is to come? And we would think that John would know the answer to who Jesus is at this point. And it's also interesting how Jesus chooses to answer this question. So let's set this in context. As we look at different narratives in Scripture, this is sort of like a moving picture. So each week we take just a moment and remind ourselves of where we are in the story. The gospel writers, they sat down and they composed a a long, in Luke's case, a long series of recorded events. He didn't just write this and didn't write it in isolation. So let's look at what we see. So John has uh, recorded for us. See, my slide is not advancing there. There we go. All right, that's better. Okay, so we've, we've come off the heels of two different healing events. One, we have the healing of the centurion's servant, and then we have the raising of the widow's son. So these two events, and then we have this story that we just read today. There's a contrast that's set up here between the centurion's servant. He was a male. He's powerful. He's most likely Roman. He demonstrates faith that Christ could do this miracle, even from a distance. He says, you don't have to come into my house. Just say the word, and it'll work. So he demonstrates that he understands who Jesus is. He understands the power that Christ has. And Jesus even commends him for his amazing faith. And so his servant is sick, and then he is healed. In contrast, and yet in similarity, the raising of the widow's son. She's a woman, as opposed to being a male. She's a widow, meaning that death has struck not once, but at least twice, taking her husband and now her son, meaning she's part of a very vulnerable population. She's presumably Jewish. She didn't request a miracle. In fact, Jesus interrupts the funeral. I think all pastors would love the ability to do that, to just stop the funeral. Hey, never mind. Let's just bring him back to life. Boy, wouldn't we love to be able to do that. Jesus does this. He actually stops the funeral procession and says, come back, you're not done yet. Amazing story. The woman didn't request it. In fact, she's not really featured. It's all about Christ and his compassion that he had on this lady. Son is dead, and then he's raised to life. We looked at that last week. So, our story today starts with the disciples of John, verse 18, reported all these things to him. That is, the disciples who were following John, the baptizer, they've just witnessed these things, and I think it probably includes more of that more things that aren't recorded necessarily for us as well. So this raises some questions with John. Is Jesus the one that we should look for? Is he the Messiah that's come? So John, the story is pretty simple. John sends a couple of representatives. Why John didn't go himself, we're not exactly sure. But he sends a couple of representatives to go and ask Jesus this question. Are you the one? Are you the one? Now, I said this is interesting because John has been asked this very question himself. You're there in Luke, so flip back, go left a few pages, and you'll find Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And as a pastor, I still love hearing Bible pages turn. There's actually an app that you can get that sounds like Bible pages turning. I'm not recommending that, but there is one. So whenever I say turn to, you can make me pretend you're looking at a book. 
make me think that. Uh, so this is uh, John, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3, verse 15. As the people were in expectation and were all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So John has gone out, and just to set the stage and remind you, John is an eccentric character, and Jesus alludes to this a little bit later in the story. He's gone out into the wilderness. He's not, he's not at the temple. He's not in the courtyard. He's gone out. He wears strange clothes. He has a strange diet. He's an eccentric character. He's speaking a strong message, and yet people are flocking out there. This is sort of the opposite of how to attract people to your church or gathering. Uh, he's a strange man out in the middle of nowhere. It's highly inconvenient, and yet people are going out there because they think he might be the Christ. So some think he is, at least, whether he might be the Christ. Verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John said, no, I'm not the one. There's one much greater than me that's coming. And he understood that this was Christ. But here's where things, I think, get really interesting. John, it sure seems, was expecting this kind of judge to come. The one with the winnowing fork. The one that was going to bring about this division of those who are following the Lord and those who aren't. The one who was going to gather the proper wheat, the good wheat, into the barn, and he was going to burn up the chaff. The one who was going to make this separation. But here comes Jesus, and Jesus alludes to this a little bit later. Jesus comes. The Son of Man comes in verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. This doesn't sound like the guy with the winnowing fork. All right? So this is John's problem. Like, okay, I'm seeing the things that he's doing, but I'm not seeing this judgment piece that I expected out of the Messiah. And I think that creates a little bit of a crisis. One person said, apparently John's interest lies on the fault line between his, what he calls, eschatological expectations, what is going to happen in the end, and the realities of what Jesus is doing. I think John was expecting something like many of you grew up singing Battle Hymn of the Republic. Does anybody remember that one? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth a trumpet that shall never call retreat. He's sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift my soul to answer him. Be jubilant my feet. Our God is marching on. He's got this triumphant, the Lord's marching on. Let's go get him. John's expecting that. But what he gets is more like, oh, sacred head now wounded in minor keys. And he's thinking, what? wait, let me, just, let me just double check this. Are you the one? Because this isn't exactly matching up. This is a huge issue, huge issue in the messianic, what we would call the messianic expectations of the day. 
we think the Messiah is supposed to be this particular type of leader. Now, as we talked about a little bit in our 9 o'clock session this morning, this gets sorted out as we understand the first coming and the second coming. But from their vantage point, they were having trouble putting all this together. In fact, there's a little bit of evidence that in, the, in some of the early Christian communities uh, during this time, uh, or not even Christian communities, Jewish communities, I should say, they actually, some people believe that there were two different messiahs coming because they had trouble sorting out what they saw as this humble servant riding in on a donkey and the, the one who was ri- arriving in triumph with, with the white horse. They had trouble sorting that out. So is maybe there's two different ones. Not everyone believed that, obviously, but they're trying to sort out how do we put all that together. I think this is really instructive for us. I think, and I want you to think about this, I think there's a difference between healthy doubt healthy questions, and destructive doubt and questions, all right? Or we could say constructive versus destructive. When I start talking about doubt, maybe it makes people nervous. What I want to be is 100% honest about what we have and the role of faith that we have as Christians. We do have faith. We do believe this is true. And it's okay to ask a question here and there. If you've been with us for any time at sunrise, you've been through some psalms with us. There are a lot of psalms asking the question, how long, O Lord? Are you watching? God, are you seeing what they're doing to me? All right, do you know what's going on in my life? And I think the psalmist goes through this process. So what draws a distinction between what we call constructive doubt versus destructive? I think the question is how you handle that. Are you actually open to answers uh, to your questions? Or... Are you just trying to poke holes in everything else? Are you willing to even question your own questions and demand the same kind of answers to your questions as you do of Christianity? So what we have with John, it's a legitimate line of questioning. He was amazed, just like everybody else. He just wasn't quite sure how to sort out the lack of judgment. In fact, if you know a little bit about your Bible, what ends up happening to John the Baptist? ends up having his head cut off, right? So the winnowing fork is in his hand. There's one coming that's mightier than I, and I'm going to get my head chopped off. That's kind of how it went for John. So you see why he's asking these questions. How is it that this is the way this is going down? Jesus' answer is instructive as well. So we have a question from John, it's a simple question. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Yes or no? Jesus answers him, but he doesn't answer in quite the same way that maybe you or I would have. Verse 21, in that hour, so Luke is noting for us that these messengers, they got to witness some things. In essence, the question comes to Jesus, are you the one? And Jesus says, watch this. Watch this. Watch what I do. In that hour, he healed many people of their diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then he said, he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. There's what 
one writer called a festival of salvation. There's all kinds of things going on here. The blind are receiving sight, the lame walk, lepers cleanse, deaf hear, and we've seen some of this already. Jesus' answer, it pulls from a number of Old Testament texts and mostly from Isaiah. He alludes to a couple of others. There are some of these that are here. Let me just read a couple of these. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day, so let me set a little context for this first. Isaiah is written some 700 years before all of these events went, took place, before Christ. And so he's writing, telling the people, this is going to be what the Messiah looks like. These are some of the things the Messiah will do. There's one coming. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Obvious allusions to what Jesus has said and the work that he's doing. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. I'll read just the last one there. Isaiah 61, we've already seen this one. He quotes it in Luke 4 when he preaches in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Jesus' answer is that, hey, go back and tell John this. Tell him what you see. Now, I think there's a little bit of code and a little bit of a wink that's sent back to John with this. John knew those texts. He knew exactly what those texts were. And so when these messengers came back and said, this is what's going on, immediately in John's mind, he's thinking, the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. We know, I know, I know. So it's, it's a more direct answer to John than maybe it would be to you um, as, or me as we sit and read it. Jesus, we could say, had the expectation was a positive ministry and maybe what we could call a negative ministry as well, although I think you could couch both of these as positives. A positive ministry, meaning there's wholeness being, being brought, there's people, there's demons being cast out, there's sight being restored, the good news is preached to the poor, but then there's a negative piece that we expect, and that's the winnowing part. That's the judgment piece, and so we see an accent for now on this coming, the positive pieces of this. In the Old Testament, sometimes, we spoke about this for a moment this morning, it's almost like when you drive up into the mountains, I believe we've talked about this before, I don't remember if I've shared my fantastic artwork on this with you before, I did in the eschatology seminar I taught one time, but I don't know if everybody was there, but when you drive up into the mountains, um, I wouldn't right now, because I think anywhere it's got a mountain is frozen, solid right now. You drive up into the mountains, and sometimes it looks like the mountain peaks are just right beside each other. And from our vantage point, looking up, you just see a mountain and you see another mountain. But then when you drive into the mountains and you see there's valleys and there's just vast distance, sometimes miles and miles and miles between these peaks that just look right beside each other. I think in the Old Testament, when you're looking at the coming of the Messiah, and I think this was John's issue, I think what he saw was this mountain peak here and this mountain peak here, and they just appeared to be right here. But what happened is when you turn it and you see there's actually a big distance between these two things. One's a first coming, one's a second coming. I'll show you an example in the book of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
So I believe Zechariah here is talking, obviously, about the first coming. And there's an obvious reference here to what we call the triumphant entry. We'll talk about that more another time. But then in Zechariah as well, you have this. Zechariah 14. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. So we have this incredible imagery of Jesus planting on the Mount of Olives, and we would say in the second coming. And it's a very different image than what we just read in Zechariah 9, right? So how do you explain that? Try to think through from an Old Testament prophet perspective. We can sort that out with the first coming, second coming. We believe Jesus is coming back. And so that makes sense to us. It works something like this. That's an Old Testament prophet. That's an actual, that's actually Zechariah. Um, Through some sophisticated technology, we were able to find out exactly what he looks like. That's him. Um, So I know you wanted to know that. So in Zechariah 9, he's looking at mountain peak number one, Zechariah 14. We're looking at two. And the little dotted line between, there's there's a distance between those. But from his vantage point, he couldn't see that. So I think this is what's going on. I would remind you on this, we live in this valley right now in between. We believe that Christ has come, and we believe he is yet to come. Many people would say, you Christians are crazy. We spoke about this earlier as well. There's a guy coming back in the clouds. Huh, interesting. Like, Dark cloud, light cloud, is it a big cloud, is it a small cloud, like a normal sized human? Or like, and they, they mock us because it just seems crazy to them. You actually believe this stuff? Yeah. How long has it been? 2,000 years. Huh. Okay. Probably this week. Probably this week. And so people mock us, and they did the same thing back in the first century. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. It, we're, we're not, God's not operating on your timetable. He is returning. Yeah, there's a gap in between these, but he's returning. So, moving on then. There's a question, a lesson. A lesson that's taught. Let's continue on in verse 23. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Following Christ brought all kinds of scandal. He was doing things like offending the religious leaders by not following all their rules and regulations. He's dining with sinners. We'll see more on that next week. He's undermining the authority of the leaders. Identifying yourself with Jesus brought a certain amount of reproach in that culture, and it will for us as well. So John's disciples leave after this. And Jesus turns to the crowd that's there, and he says, let me just give you a little bit of a lesson. Let's understand who John actually is. Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone out, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken in the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury, are in king's courts. What did you go to see? Did you go to see somebody that wasn't going to tell you the truth? Did you go to just check out the scenery and watch the grass blow 
No, you went out to listen to John because he brought a strong message of repentance. In seminary, you have these torturous classes. It's called, uh, it's called preaching lab, all right? Preaching laboratory. And so what you do in preaching lab is there's about seven or eight of you, at least in my seminary experience, there's seven or eight of you, and you're in a class with a professor, and each of you takes a turn, and you get 30 minutes to preach a sermon to your classmates. Talk about awkward. It's 7.30 in the morning, and everybody's half awake, and your other classmates are sitting there, and you got to preach a sermon um, to your classmates, and then they evaluate you. So everybody's, like, looking down, not looking at you. It's, it's pretty torturous, um, actually. And so we, we had a, one professor in particular and I always think of him when I read this passage because you did not go to his class to hear a reed shaken in the wind. Um, he was going to give you some feedback that was honest and brutal, helpful, but he didn't mince words. One time, one of, the, one of my classmates, he's preaching a sermon, and he gives an illustration at the beginning of the sermon about an airplane. And he said this plane, and it was trying to get off the runway, and it had a problem, and the, the plane crashed before it ever got off the runway end of the sermon, the professor says, you remember that story you told about the, the plane and the runway, that plane that never got off the ground? He goes, I was just on that plane. <laughs> he said, all of us were on that plane. <laughs> I just thought, oh gosh. <laughs> you did not go to hear a reed shaken in the wind. <laughs> it was sometimes brutal. One other time, same class, this guy, he, you had 30 minutes. And when he said 30 minutes, like, it was 30 minutes, okay? So this guy, he goes a little long, and he cuts him off. He's like, time's up, you're done. Then he says, your conclusion was terrible. <laughs> and the guy says, he goes, well, I didn't, I didn't have time to get to my conclusion. He said, you had the same amount of time that everybody else had. I'm like, whoo, you did not go. That's, that was the preaching of John. And Jesus Jesus is pointing to him saying, you didn't go to hear a reed shaking in the wind. You didn't go to see a, a guy dressed in soft clothing. You didn't go to listen to this guy pontificate. You went out there because he's preaching a strong message about the kingdom of God. That's John. That's what he's doing. And he's a prophet. What did you go to see then? Verse 26, a prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He's the one that's come to prepare the way of the Lord. Because of his unique role, verse 28, because of this, of those born of women, none is greater than John. He's, he's the goat. He's the greatest of all time, of the prophets. But then he says something really interesting. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, what a fascinating statement that is. He's drawing attention to the unique nature, and this isn't unpacked for us here. I'll argue throughout Luke that this is unpacked more and more as we move along. It's a unique nature of this, what we call the new covenant ministry that Jesus is now inaugurating and bringing about. You, who, are on, who end up living on this side of the resurrection of Christ, this, you who understand who Jesus is, you're going to be greater relative to John. Amazing statement. This is divisive. There are two groups. Some like it, some don't. Now notice who the groups are, because again, as Luke continues to do 
It's upside down. It's not the right group that gets commended here. Verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Now, why does he mention the tax collectors? Why, why, the, why their IRS guys? Why are we always picking on them? Well, he's already interacted a little bit with the tax collectors a couple of times already, and he's going to do it again. They weren't known for being the most morally upright people. Remember what Jesus has already said? He said, I didn't come to call the well, but I came to call the sick. They had an understanding of their moral bankruptcy. So I think that's one thing that's at work. But notice also, verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They are the ones who are the experts in the law. They know what's going on. They say this Jesus character, he's kind of not intellectual for us, enough for us. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. I recommended a book a while back. It was actually our book of the month uh, for one month. Uh, Neil Shinvey wrote a book called Why Believe? And it's an interesting book on apologetics. And in the book, Neil Shinvey shares his own story. Neil Shinvey is extremely smart. He's a theoretical chemist, um, which, you know, chemistry that's not theoretical is difficult enough for me when I took it in school. So theoretical chemistry, I don't even know. While he's a PhD student at Stanford, he gets around some other Christians and starts reading uh, different apologetic materials. And he very honestly talks about one of the barriers for him coming to Christ was he felt like Christianity was sort of a step backwards intellectually. So he felt like he was a little bit too far advanced. If I admit that Jesus is real, if I admit that Christianity is true, well, then I'm going to have to sort of align myself with a segment of the population now that I don't really want to align with. Um, and, he, and he's real honest about his writing about that. He, he wrote this, I had always assumed that Christianity could not possibly be accepted by thoughtful, intelligent people, at least not by people as thoughtful and intelligent as me. Surely, Christianity was for well-meaning and sometimes not so well-meaning people with substandard educations and a streak of intellectual fear bordering on dishonesty. Not mincing words there either. This stereotype functioned as an implicit and impenetrable bulwark against Christian claims. But suddenly, my defenses began to crumble. I was forced to consider the message of Christianity without dismissing it out of hand. I think that's the two things that we have going on here. We have the tax collectors referenced specifically because you, you, you really didn't have to convince them that they had some moral issues. Um, they're like, yeah, we're kind of a mess. Uh, and I, I think that's why the, the gospel was so, and, and the, the ministry of Christ was so attractive to them. But these other people, they thought, hey, that's kind of below me. Um, yeah, that may work for you, but for me, I kind of have my life together. I'm an expert in the law. I don't need all that. And I think it was a major hurdle for them to overcome. I think that's why a story like John chapter 3, Nicodemus coming to Jesus. Remember when he comes to him? He comes at night. Um, I think Nicodemus is wrestling through some of this. Because it's not just recognizing Jesus. It's leaving a whole system of thought and having to admit that we got it wrong. But Jesus is talking about their book. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah in Zechariah, in Hosea, and other places. And they're like, oh, wait a minute now. That's my book. That's our book. We know how to interpret that, but you, you're not using it right. 
And so that's what's going on, this division. That leads to this last part, this warning. Verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like little children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. This is so interesting. You're just not, you just can't be happy. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge for you. You did not weep. John came eating no bread, drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. Son of man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They just can't, they just can't be happy. We sang a happy song. You didn't like that. A sad song, you didn't like that either. You're just a bunch of petulant children, is what Jesus is getting at. Yet, verse 35, wisdom is justified by all her children. It's an interesting phrase. It's going to lead us into the next section, which we'll consider a little bit more next week. The grumpy, grumpy Pharisees are incensed that Jesus allows this terrible, sinful woman in his presence. But wisdom is justified by her children. The ones who recognize that he's doing the right things are the ones who are wise, not the ones who think they're wise in and of themselves. Just a few thoughts that I'll give you as we wrap it up for this week from Luke chapter 7. Number one is this. Just remember, God's plan is the best plan. It's always the best plan. You may not know exactly why the Lord has brought you on the particular path that he's brought you on. John certainly seemed to have some questions as to why Jesus was doing it really this way. Why are we not breaking out the winnowing fork now? Why are we not kicking the Romans out? Why are we not doing this? Just remember God's plan is the best plan. Number two, the experts here, the Pharisees, the experts aren't always right. Now, I don't want to just give you free license to apply this anywhere and everywhere, although I'm sure many would love to. That's not my point. Um, the experts aren't always right. Those who, who, who study the scriptures and even spend a living studying the scriptures, it doesn't mean that they are teaching truth all the time. The experts aren't always right. Here, the tax collectors and the sinners get it. The experts in the law, they miss it. And by the law, I mean the law of God. The experts aren't always right. And then lastly, don't be a grumpy Pharisee, all right? Just don't be a grumpy Pharisee. Don't be a grumpy legalist that's telling everybody else what they did wrong. The Pharisees just couldn't accept, couldn't accept what Jesus was saying and what he was doing. We don't want to be that person. Don't be a grumpy Pharisee. I don't know how that intersects exactly with your life today, but I pray that through the course of this, we would all come to understand who we are we'd find ourselves more like the tax collectors, more like the ones who are very aware of our need for Christ and what he's done for us, rather than those who self-righteously sit on our thrones and look down and say, yeah, I don't think I need all that. I'm good. Jesus is going to continue with this motif of the tax collectors and those who elevate themselves, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, as it says. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you that you have come to call those who are sick. Lord, we come as people today. We recognize that we are far from perfect. Lord, we recognize that we are needy individuals. Lord, we don't want to be like the Pharisees, those who think we have it all together, but are missing so much and missing the point. 
Lord, we pray that you wouldn't allow us to be those kinds of people. Father, for those maybe in here this morning, uh, maybe there's some who have never repented of their sins and trusted in Christ as their Savior. Use your word, we pray. Use the gospel. Show them their need for you today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>